This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. This is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Absent players. Money laundering in Counter-Strike. Chili. And the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors. Remember Once Upon a Time? The fairy tale storytelling card game? That's the one. Do I? It's been an evergreen bestseller for 25 years now. Did you know there's a new expansion this holiday season? As a matter of fact, I put the copy for this ad in this week's grip, so not only do I know that, I also know that fairy tale mashups brings specific characters and situations from classic fairy tales to Once Upon a Time. So where original Once Upon a Time has a king and uh, something that can fly... Fairy tale mashups bring specifics like Puss in Boots, Humpty Dumpty, and a beanstalk. So it has hilarious juxtapositions. Check! Immediate accessibility for anyone who's ever heard a fairy tale. Check! An ending card that implies the three bears were eaten by a giant sheep. Spoiler alert! Once Upon a Time is a fairy tale storytelling card game great for role players and card gamers of all ages. It's a perfect holiday gift item and its new expansion fairy tale mashups releases this November. Visit atlas-games.com for more information. Or get the to thine friendly local game store. Where every gamer lives happily ever after. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the empty bowl, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us back to the gaming hut, except... Weren't there supposed to be Doritos in that bowl? Did the guy who brings the Doritos... Did did Steve not show up? Damn it, Steve. Steve, uh, not only did he not show up, but like at the very last moment, he let us know in the Slack channel yeah. that he's uh, snowed in, which is weird because... The game is in Alabama. don't see any snow outside, but... Right, yeah. Maybe maybe it's just... Um, Steve's had a cocaine habit. Maybe that's what he's referring to. Oh, I shouldn't <laughs> have said that online. Anyway, um, Steve and his jittery bard aside... Uh, this is a constant problem. People are fond of saying, what's the biggest challenge in Dungeons and Dragons? Is it fighting off a ancient huge red dragon? Is it evading a, uh, a mind uh, flare as you move through the planescapes? No, it's just getting everyone uh, to agree to meet at the same time on the same night every week or every month. Uh, how do you handle the absent players? Because you can't do that. Steve, God bless him. He's got the rehab. He's got a lot of other problems. He doesn't show up. Maybe other people have kids or they have other things that somehow seem more important than gaming. I don't understand that myself, but I don't judge, Robin, as you know. I'm never a judger. You're not a judger. That's the number one judge about you. That is the best thing about Well, it's among the best things. There's so many good... Anyway, the larger point is... <laughs> well, your judgment of yourself is is uh, obviously sterling, but... Right. Um, player absence is, is, not just, is not just inconvenient uh, in the short term. It also can put a hole in the GM's plans, especially if a story has been building up as we enjoy a story to do and a character is core to the activity and suddenly they can't be there to find out that their brother was actually the anti-paladin all along or whatever the exciting reveal was supposed to be. So Robin, you've run a game about as long as I've run a game, I suspect. So do you have tips and tricks? So the first thing is that I uh, have learned to hand wave absence as much as possible that uh, when it doesn't really make a difference, 
why uh, Steve wasn't there that uh, last week and now Steve's back. Do you spend a lot of time reintegrating Steve into the story? Do you explain where Steve's character was? The answer is, unless a really cool idea presents itself, and that's an obvious fun thing that works with what's going on, uh, I just go, okay, well, your character was off somewhere. Nobody remarked that they weren't there to go into the puzzle canal. Uh, no one noticed that you uh, would normally be the one negotiating with the bandit queen. Uh, and uh, you're back here again, and we uh, make no mention of that. Um, sometimes you see on uh, serial television, you can tell an episode where the actor has been suddenly called in uh, sick or something, and they had to write around that character. And they'll be, uh, you know, it's like... Uh, yeah, Jim Bob is off at Quantico uh, studying this week. And then mysteriously, the things that uh, uh, Jim Bob would have done are uh, being uh, taken over by Janie and so forth. And uh, that's kind of what I think mostly has to happen uh, in uh, a role-playing setup. And that, uh, as you suggest, does uh, cause problems. Because as, as much as you uh, want to engineer an ongoing campaign so that there is a never a cliffhanger that is dependent on a particular character uh, that sometimes it just happens, right? That the yeah. timing works out. It's like, it's, you have, uh, you know, Steve is there facing down Wyatt Earp and uh, there's the big dramatic moment and you say, come back next week. And Steve doesn't come back next week. And so uh, sometimes the just hand wave it thing doesn't work and you have to take um, other measures. So I'm sure you're about to tell us about it. Yeah. I mean, the sort of standard, and this works super well in games that are relatively constrained in terms of character changing decisions, uh, your dungeons and your dragons, um, just let somebody else play Steve's character. He's a bard. We know what bards do. They get in the way. Um, so uh, uh, Jane plays Steve. Everyone's happy. And we move through life. Um, we used to have, back in my very old uh, days, uh, when uh, there was a lot of supers being played, we would say that uh, they were on a mission in space, which is always the uh, thing that in the Justice League, you would say, the Atom, Green Arrow, and Elongated Man must stop this reign of robots. And everyone's like, why aren't Green Lantern and Superman stopping the reign of robots? Oh, they're on a mission in space. It's very important, but they couldn't be here. So that was just our sort of all-purpose fill-in for where they were and why they couldn't come back. All of a sudden, another possibility is to run if you desperately needed to have that showdown with Wyatt Earp. And that's very important. And you feel that it's valuable that Steve get to play Steve in that showdown instead of just another player playing Steve, having his head blown off. Uh, then you can run a flashback uh, if the players are cool with it, or you can run a uh, dream sequence or something else. Uh, in my current game, we were just about to run the big heist. Uh, at the rodeo in Capisa, uh, in uh, Bactria, and the character who uh, planned the heist, uh, Darcy's thief and Zach's occultist, both Darcy and Zach had to miss. So we did a side quest to go get horses. And that was a pretty great adventure because I was able to tune it down. There were four players instead of six. So they was a bit of a, a different tactical challenge because they had to work around other things. I made sure that there were plenty of places that they're like, ah, damn it. If we just had the thief, she could have infiltrated or gone into shadow. So there was, it was a fun side quest, but sometimes you can't always do that. Um, another possibility is to say, We're running the everything after the gunfight and uh, 
we're going to uh, leave the out the actual outcome of the gunfight uh, as undetermined as possible. Or um, you, if it's a gunfight, you can actually just do a roll off, and you know Steve wasn't there, but the dice come up the way the dice always would have come up. So that's just uh, what happens when you're facing down White Earp. You you get shot. Uh, now sometimes I will tell players that uh, I will warn them uh, if we hit a cliffhanger and they know ahead of time that they're not going to make it. Uh, and of course, you don't always have that luxury, but when you do, that gives you more time to plan so that uh, you yeah. can set up the cliffhanger so that. Uh, that uh, Steve's character is is set upon by uh, cloaked figures who uh, um, drag him off uh, unnoticed by the others. And so right. that you have a, a cliffhanger that uh, uh, leans into the fact that someone is going to be away. Um, yeah, if you can plan for the absence, then that almost works, I don't say as well, but it but it can work really well because you just, you can even do it in game. You can say, um, well, my character has really been wanting to go gather medicinal herbs, so I'll go do that, and that's why I'm not there. And you just have an explanation, and it works out, and when they come back, they have, you know, die four plus two medicinal herbs, and everyone's happy. And uh, with the sort of showdown with Wyatt Earp thing, I would also be tempted to to do a flash forward. Um, flashbacks are hard uh, because the, the stakes are low, right? You know that the characters right, yeah. aren't going to be killed in a, a flashback. So I would always sooner uh, jump ahead to... Uh, it's a week after the uh, uh, the gunfight with Wyatt Earp and uh, Steve's bard has is, is gone missing uh, and uh, the, there is uh, smoke and confusion and, and uh, uh, everyone in the group has sworn uh, not to talk about this until they see the Golden Eagle. And of course, you know, the Golden Eagle is going to show up at the beginning of the, the next episode so that it creates a, um, a sort of a mystery around the character being mis- missing. And quite often when... Uh, that player comes back, I will uh, put it on them to explain, you know, you were supposed to be there for the big peace talks and all of a sudden you weren't. Uh, what happened to you? Uh, wh- why weren't you there? And uh, you can either just give them the option of going, well, I was in a mission in space or I had, you know, I was waylaid by my cousin or, or, or what have you. Or you can do quite a dramatic sort of uh, thing where, you know, you wake up in a coffin uh, buried underground and you don't know how you got there and you've got missing time and you claw your way out of the, the coffin and dig your way up out of the ground and head back to your friends. And now the mystery uh, is who did this to you and why? And why is everybody's uh, memory missing? But of course, that's something that's very dramatic and fun and cool if you do it once, but it's not something that you can do every three weeks when uh, that character is regularly missing. So uh, also, the trick is if you know you have a group where people have very unpredictable attendance, which is my current group, that uh, I make sure that nothing ever fully depends on one uh, given player. And it sort of makes sense as, uh, that that you're seeing the adventures of a group of people who hang out together and some of them do things together each week and some of them don't. And so I try to avoid big cliffhangers and also uh, avoid uh, having any one a major part of the story arc depend uh, too much on on one player. And that's just good advice in general, because yeah. um, not only uh, do you have problems with that player is absent, but you have problems with that player is present because they're hogging all the spotlight time. They're becoming the main right. character. You're, you're not making enough of the story about the other characters. Yeah. Um, and so uh, the uh, one sort of thing to take note of is if you know that uh, – uh, if Janie tells you ahead of time that she's not going to be there that weekend, you don't know what to do without Janie, 
that's a bigger problem than just this one week. That that's a sign that you need to give other people uh, either also pivotal roles in that uh, story arc, so that uh, the you know the, the quest for the golden eagle continues even if uh, even if Janie's character isn't there, but also. Or, or give them other alternate plot lines that they are following. And so which plot thread everybody picks up just sort of depends on um, who is there that week. And so uh, th- that is a situation where you uh, uh, sometimes you're stuck with a cliffhanger, uh, but uh, you try to make the cliffhangers be situations that apply uh, equally to all of the characters. So it's not that uh, Steve's character is throwing down with wider, but everybody is throwing down with a whole bunch of uh, lawmen in Tombstone. And uh, if uh, uh, Steve's character is in there next week, you won't particularly notice because it's a big group on group thing rather than uh, a one-on-one. <laughs> because all of you have got horrible, horrible wounds. Yes. <laughs> I mean, one other thing you can do is if it's an interpersonal cliffhanger, it, this works less well with a, a gunfight with Wyatt Earp. Although I suppose you could also even do that. Um, but if it's an interpersonal cliffhanger, it's like, oh, Janie was supposed to have the confrontation with her father. And even maybe set it up, we even maybe set it up that Janie sees her father coming. And then Janie doesn't make it. You're like, oh, when she comes back, it's not like you pick up from that confrontation. You say, your father looked at you, turned around and walked off without saying a word. So you can use that absence to ratchet up the emotional stakes as opposed to defuse the emotional stakes. Similarly, I suppose... You could say you see Steve and Wyatt Earp standing in the middle of the um, uh, of, of the street in Tombstone. The the clock ticks toward high noon, and then Kate Fisher runs out of the photography studio and whispers something in Steve's ear, and uh, he seems to back down. And she whispers something to Wyatt Earp, and he puts his gun away, and that's what happened. And then Steve and Wyatt have, have no one can find them, and then you just do the the week's adventures of other things. Oh, we wish we could go hunt down Stephen Wyatt, but we are being pestered by the Clanton gang, so we have other stuff we got to do, and so. Then the next week, you put it on Steve's character. What did Kate Fisher tell you? What's your deal with Wyatt Earp now? You wanted to shoot him, but you can't. What would prevent you from doing that? Right. And that allows you to sort of, again, to uh, jump ahead in time and come back. And that's something you've seen in, in serialized television a lot, which is that the thing that you uh, – sometimes the cliffhanger will pick right up at the uh, uh, where, where it left off. But other times, they'll uh, move forward in time, and uh, it'll be a mystery for a while as to – uh, what happened between uh, uh, Steve and, and, and Wyatt, and uh, you determine that later as you go along. And so um, ultimately it's a matter of um, making sure that there are either group goals, that everybody is sort of pursuing one or two main things together, and that they are not interchangeable, but that some of them are dispensable at any given moment as to moving toward that, or that everybody in parallel has an equally compelling plot line uh, that they can then pick up the narrative slack when uh, suddenly an unexpected group of uh, people is there. And, and sometimes even I've had uh, a situation where half my group will show up one week and a completely other half will show up the next week. And that's actually uh, that's the good. easiest thing, right? <laughs> yeah. Is that uh, you can just do explain what they were doing off at this other group somewhere else. And so, uh, you know, in that case, you just sort of switch the focus entirely. And, and, it is something that does impede believability, but it's 
it's not you're the one who's not doing that. You were presumably there, right? As GM, if, if you can't make mm -hmm. it, you just cancel and, and that the right. problem solves itself. Yeah, the, the, the game solves itself. Everyone plays Root or something. Right. Um, another, I mean, this is also a, I, I think we should shout out that systemically you can solve this by using Ars Magica or another game with a troop mechanic, where if the player who's playing the big wizard can't make it, play another player's big wizard. And players play various sidekicks and you are designed to have sort of parallel storylines going on. And you're designed to only have one character who's important at a time. And if that character can't make it, you just switch to another one of the important characters who was obviously doing something because they're also important. And that, um, I mean, I've run a lot of Ars Magica and I, you know, the absent player is, is a, it's not even a problem. It's just a matter of shifting gears a little bit. It's much like you're, you know, half the group shows up one day, half the group shows the other day, except that all the players are in both halves of the group. So you've always got another A, another A plot line you can, you know, put in gear and, and go on. Right. And that by and large, I think it's another generally good GMing tip to be able to run to the length of your average session. So you can gauge what a three hour or four hour uh, story feels like with you and your group so that you maybe don't have a double cliffhanger situation, which can get a little hairy, even with Ars Magica. Um, at some point you run out of main characters, but I, I think that that's, that's a piece of technology that's existed since, you know, whatever it was, 87 or whatever. And, uh, it, it's, it's a great piece of tech that no one uses enough. And so we should recommend it at this point. Right. Um, there are some limitations, uh, about having people play other people's characters. We should uh, mention because they're obvious. One is that you want to give the characters being played uh, by not their regular characters some degree of immunity. So uh, you don't want to come back to a session you missed and find out that your character, that Janie got your character killed doing something stupid. Um, mm -hmm. and or so, even something smart, really. You don't want to <laughs> come yes. back and find that out. Uh, so uh, you want to sort of, even if they're kind of playing their character in dramatic scenes, I would definitely keep them out of, uh, uh, fights and stuff where you uh, have a chance of uh, someone being uh, killed off. That's a bummer. Nobody wants that to happen. Um, and uh, even any, I, I would, uh, I'm super reluctant actually to have players ever play anybody's character for that reason. Either they're playing them and there's no stakes because they, they can't die because it's unfair or they do die and it's, it's a drag for everybody. And uh, you don't want to have, your big climactic moment played by somebody else while you're not there. So I right. would much rather, and, and there's also the issue in a complicated uh, combat uh, oriented system where it's just difficult to play two characters, especially uh, when one of them is one that you're not familiar with their powers and you're inevitably right. going to screw up. Um, I do sometimes make an exception when the person playing the healer character in a system where that yeah. is intrinsic <laughs> to the system is absent. And I may hand wave people some, some healing in order to keep them going. Um, but other than that, I, I try whenever possible not to uh, have other people. There's just too much uh, that can go wrong when you have somebody play somebody else's character. Um, uh, but one thing that uh, never goes wrong on this podcast is that uh, we know reliably that very, very exciting commercials uh, are here. And really, these segments just space them out. So it's time for one of those. And then, I don't know, some segment or other on the other side.
With Gumshoe, you always get the clue. With your Gumshoe bargaining ability, you always get the best deals. So consider this your clue to head on over to the Bundle of Holding for two astounding Trail of Cthulhu deals. The brand new Cities of Cthulhu PDF package contains never-before-bundled books of cosmic urban terror. Bookends of Paris and its companion in-game fiction artifact, The Book of Ants. And Gareth Hanrahan's Cthulhu City. Along with Volume 1 of Ken Wright's About stuff, and much, much more. Tell friends who have yet to hear the gumshoe word that the original Trail of Cthulhu deal is back in the bundle of holding two. It includes the core rulebook that started it all, the pulp anthology Stunning Eldritch Tales, and such classic supplements as Bookhounds of London and the Armitage Files. The deal ends three days after this episode drops, so type bundleofholding.com into your browser as fast as you possibly can. Your friends will thank you. And you will thank you. The whirring of sirens and the uh, clacking at keyboards as uh, forensic accountants uh, clack away at their spreadsheets tell us that we're once more looking at the crime blotter. And uh, this time I thought we would uh, talk about a a fun and interesting connection between uh, gaming, although not tabletop gaming, and crime. And then, Although, let's uh, just note that Sirens and Spreadsheets would make a heck of a, of a role-playing game title. Yes, we'll have to, have to call it, uh, have to come up with that. Um, so, the uh, video game Counter-Strike uh, recently had to issue a patch uh, disabling, and uh, while we describe this, uh, it's going to become apparent, certainly, that I don't play Counter-Strike. And oh, we, yeah. And maybe <laughs> you is, don't as well. So. If, if you pretend that this is being reported by, like, the local news by the old guy anchor, yeah. you will have a really good understanding of where we are in this story. <laughs> so, uh, Counter-Strike Global Offensive uh, had to uh, uh, issue a patch taking away the ability to uh, trade keys to loot crates or something. So it's, it's, uh, you had access to gear and you could buy the gear on the, uh, on the site, uh, through Valve, which is the developer of the game. And they, you, so on, you could go onto Steam and, and spend money to get things to use in your game. And you could trade these things back and forth. And they had to stop this because it turned out that this was catnip to, uh, global fraudsters. And, as soon as uh, there are many platforms uh, that are used for money laundering in different ways, money launderers are way more excited by the possibility of trading gear in Counter-Strike than people who are actually using the gear for their characters. And uh, virtually all of the transactions surrounding this virtual gear turned out to be fraudulent. The company didn't say a lot, and it's not mysterious to me that they didn't because I think um, and you might back me up in this, Ken. They might have lawyers mm-hmm. who who want to minimize uh, the PR uh, impact of this. Uh, but what they're saying is that the sale of these keys to these crates uh, were being used by uh, uh, practitioners of internet fraud. So people who are l- alert for opportunities uh, to uh, take their uh, illegal money, in this case, I think mostly gained through fraud, and uh, turn it into legal money uh, by... Uh, selling stuff online. And I guess the idea here is that anytime there's a virtual good that can be traded for uh, uh, whatever amount, whether it's one that you choose or not, that that's a pretty easy way to uh, to launder money. There's also rampant money laundering on uh, uh, Amazon, or at least was at one point with the sale of eBooks. So you would, uh, if you wanted to, you know, pay off your, your dealer, 
uh, or pay a bribe to somebody. You would just set set them up with an ebook account, and then you'd put a lot of you'd buy their non-existent ebooks, and uh, they would have the money, and it would look like they were honest purveyors of electronic information. Uh, so, Kim, what uh, came to your mind when you uh, first uh, saw this uh, deliciously ironic story? I mean, there's a lot of cool stuff about this story. I think, first of all, as far as I am given to understand by my uh, research, the skins don't actually make your weapon better. Because the valve was like, oh, we don't want to make change the weapons and we don't want to actually... Uh, do anything that alters the game mechanically. So you just look cool. And they thought, well, people will pick the camouflage skins because then they can blend into the screen. But no, people like being decked out in like bright magenta outfits so that they look badass, like sort of anime superheroes when they're running around. And so the ones that were super popular were sort of randomized anyway, because Valve had no idea. Some of them were worth more or less money once the market sort of established. It was purely uh, uh, based, I think, on the rarity. So what basically happened was Valve built a fiat currency in skins that it then took a rake off because it took a rake off of all these skin uh, auctions and trades. And so you're buying the keys, which are a random chance at a random loot box. You don't know what's in it in a container. And it might be a cool skin or it might be a bad skin. And even if you just buy the key, the odds are you're going to lose money on the deal and Valve will get money on the deal. But if you get a good loot box, then you can trade shit around on Steam uh, on Valve's marketplace. And in order to trade it, you have to have the key. And so you're actually trading the key back and forth. Well, because this is a fiat currency, it immediately has all the problems of regular currency and it has money laundering. It has currency manipulation. It has gambling. It has everything else. People are using skins to pay off other sports debt uh, bets because you'd be playing, you know, these games uh, on a, a team mode or a, or a general mode. And some guy would come on and he'd be trash talking you because you're from Wisconsin and he's from Florida. And you'd be like, Oh, the Miami dolphins are terrible. And he'd be saying, no, they're not, they're going to win. And then you'd bet, your keys back and forth as to whether or not the dolphins were going to win. The dolphins of course would lose and you'd make money. And this suddenly became underage gambling. And that was a whole big legal problem for these guys at valve. So they had to sort of try and shut down the gambling. People are running um, gambling YouTube websites where they teach you to do underage gambling on counter-strike, which was a whole nother problem. <laughs> right. And, th- this and is then what's so fascinating about it is that these talk about emergent play that this has nothing to do with the putative gameplay of Counter-Strike. Um, you do imagine that uh, if there was a game that was going to appeal to people in, say, for example, drug cartels, they probably pl- play a lot of Counter-Strike, right? There might uh, yeah. be some other, you know, uh, a cute pony-based game where there's some other sort of fiat currency, but perhaps it's not uh, capture the immediate attention of the sort of people who need to uh, shift illegal money around to, to move a lot of illegal money. And so the, the valve, you know, set up a thing where you can't in theory use uh, skin money and turn it into regular money. So you only profit in game, except that people set up a cryptocurrency that accepted skin money and bought you like <laughs> ether coin or whatever the hell. Yes, the, the, uh, not only nature, but also the market finds a way. Exactly. And, and so they had um, a cryptocurrency called SkinCoin, which sounds terrifying, by the way. <laughs> Thanks, Ezoterrorists, for that. And then there was other cryptocurrencies that would, you know, sort of uh, latch Remora-like onto this giant pool 
of money that can't go anywhere, which, by the way, should be a lesson to all you Latin American congresses out there. You know, build up your pretend money all you want, but at some point people want to turn it into real money. And so the, uh, the, the, the fact that the cryptocurrency suddenly lets you turn this stuff into real money is, I think, sort of the, the killer app for your, your cartels and your global arms dealers and whoever else is using this stuff. And it's not just a teeny bit of money. The estimate for the size of the value of the virtual good trade in 2016 was $5 billion and in 2020 was expected, although one assumes that this change will cut that back a good bit is expected to be $20 billion. So let's say, you know, if that's a straight line, uh, we were around 15 or 16 billion dollars right now, uh, or, or last week before they, they made those changes to the, um, uh, to the, the rule that you cannot now swap keys around on the, uh, on the Steam marketplace. Uh, you can still get keys in game and play with them, but you can't do, um, uh, uh, swaps around, uh, amongst you because you're probably some sort of skeevy Ukrainian money launderer, not a, a nice uh, boy from Florida who just believes in the Miami Dolphins. So now let's uh, we get to the part where we start uh, riffing uh, scenario ideas, and uh, one of them is that uh, if a uh, the reputable video game company decides to clamp down on the uh, billion with a B fraudulent uh, transaction trade on in their game and uh, to uh, patch the game to remove it. Well. I bet there's an unscrupulous game manufacturer that realizes that that's a lot of money being yeah, able to rate. Yeah, we get 15% of $20 billion, That's like grown-up people money. Uh, so you uh, could posit uh, possibly uh, some uh, offshore uh, location with uh, lenient uh, cybercrime laws, a, a video game arising uh, specifically to enable this, right? It would just uh, have to be uh, good enough to seem uh, credible, uh, for people to uh, play it, right? You're looking for the uh, veil of uh, respectability for this game. And so uh, you would, for example, have to hire a bunch of people to design uh, your game for you and uh, all of the, uh, from the computer animation to the level design and, uh, you know, all the different uh, sorts of the game. But the whole purpose of the game is just a Trojan horse in order to become an international forum for money laundering. And uh, one of the uh, game designers uh, twigs to what's going on. And uh, as game designers uh, sometimes are, he's a, an upright, somewhat literal minded person who just doesn't think that this is right. It's a, uh, uh, you know, he's, he's a libertarian in general, but this is disrespectful to gaming, darn it. And so he's going to uh, put together a dossier and uh, uh, let the authorities know. And, Oh, he's turned up dead. And here's your, uh, your first mystery scenario that uh, revolves around this is, uh, you know, why did this game designer wind up dead? And uh, this can happen in a uh, regular detective universe or uh, be a good Mutant City Blues scenario, in which case the computer game would probably be one of uh, superheroes fighting each other or mutant uh, people with mutant powers. And uh, you, as, as is typical, you would start off thinking, oh, there's some other reason why this person was killed. But no, it's because the computer game they were working on uh, was fraudulent. And the uh, the money launderers figured out that he was going to spill the beans, and uh, uh, they whacked him. Uh, what other plots come to mind? I mean, the other thing is that as people are doing these money launderings through the thing, you need to have uh, better and better expert systems to handle the microtransactions and to take advantage of shifts in the market. So you start programming an expert system that's really, really good at money laundering using global Counter-Strike. 
And that, of course, in the world of fun, becomes an AI money launderer that lives virtually out there. It shows up on chat rooms. Sometimes it shows up and kills you in global in Counter-Strike. But because it's an AI and it has tendrils in everybody's accounts, it knows that when it killed Jed from Florida, it knows that Jed's brother is a cop. And it says, hey, Jed, um, I'm going to erase this off your record. If you uh, get your brother to um, uh, to do this little favor for us and, you know, maybe put some uh, money into your into your skin coin account. And so the AI is building its own criminal empire. You've got an AI, Dr. Mabuza, who's living inside the game and running this global money laundering thing. And these criminals all think, oh, we just know a guy in Kiev. And we contact him through the game, through the chat, uh, chat facility. But in fact, there is no guy in Kiev. It's an AI and it's an evil AI that wants to create the world of global, of counter-strike global offensive where cool stocking mask teens run around machine gunning everyone. And it's like, well, the way to make the outside world and the inside world match up is to use my power and these billions of dollars that I have floating around to do it. So that's your villain. And the way to beat him is, uh, probably not enter counter-strike global offensive and play it until you reach the hundredth level uh it's probably to um blow something up but uh i like both options they're both good right well what you're blowing up is probably all the warehouses that it's buying all around the world to uh construct robotics plants because this answers the question that i think we've always had which is before skynet fully became skynet how did it finance itself right there's right you need money to build a robot army well i assume it was it was um also doing a little bit of pilfering from the defense department well yes that's uh yeah that's pretty easy right there but uh, uh you still get you, you still need you know uh, fax machines and uh photocopiers and uh, employees there's all sorts right. of things. No, you, you, every every revenue stream is a good revenue stream i mean the cia uh pilfers money from the defense department all the time but it's always got an eye out for the main chance yeah that's why we love it so and uh you know there's your your regular uh, graft and then there's the extra special graft that you don't want uh you know, you don't want the Defense Department tracing all of your invoices back to your warehouse full of robots. Right, especially That's, if you are building a deadly killer robot. Exactly. Um, now, once we start adding the, the supernatural to this, it could be that, in fact, uh, the AI, which in this case is uh, a discarnate demon operating in the, uh, in, in the game, is not uh, literally looking for money, although even demons can use money. That's... Uh, you know, demons do have to uh, tempt people, and, and uh, there's nothing like cash to, to tempt people, but also right. uh, that they are establishing just a, a network of correspondences and connections, and that everyone who buys a skin from them, uh, the special demon skin, uh, or uh, uh, cashes in some uh, uh, outer dark coin, uh, then becomes bound to them, and they have a, a, an influence uh, over them. And so your uh, goal then is to uh, somehow undo the uh, the ritual of binding that they're doing uh, through the medium of a multiplayer uh, computer game. And uh, this also just sort of indicates sort of a side uh, note that you could put, for example, in a, uh, a Knight's Black Agents game where uh, you really, you need to rendezvous with somebody, but they don't want uh, you to identify them. They don't want to identify you. There's a good chance that if you met in real life that one of you would try to kill the other one. So where do you meet you? meet in a, in a in a video game and you use your code words and uh whether the person leads you into uh this building for this particular firefight indicates one thing about uh, where your uh, uh need to run or it could be in fact that they 
have done the level design and are showing you uh, how to do the Kiev run and get away from the vampires there by uh, leading you through the uh, computer game uh, version of that. So the just the general idea of the use of these things that are not build as communication platforms, but in fact are communication platforms, uh, that that uh, creates all sorts of uh, additional level of very contemporary detail for you to add into sort of any uh, modern spy or crime story. Yeah, I mean, the the great thing about a computer game uh, is that it acts as this interface between, like we said, finance, uh, communication, and individual people with individual stories or problems or however you want to say it. So anything that happens in the modern world can be reflected into this sort of, and that's obviously why computer games are so popular is that they do reflect a lot of stuff that happens in the modern world, but that they can both turn into the other one. So if you have a vampire conspiracy in the modern world, it's worth asking, how do they relate to video games? At the very least, they've got, you know, um, someone's chat channel hacked as their covert chat channel. At the very most, like you say, they're an evil, corrupt uh, video game developer that works for vampires and drains your uh, life force through the game as you lose life points by by playing. Some tr- magical transaction occurs and your life force is transferred to the vampire that sits at the center with a bunch of USB cables plugged into its uh, uh, body or whatever. Um, anything that you've got going on in the modern world, it's, I think it's worth asking, how is it relating to these sorts of massively multiplayer Games, And I think a lot of it is is that because the players who get sucked into the game is one of the cheesiest, dumbest things that happens in modern books and movies, we try to avoid it. But it is part of lived experience for people in the modern world. And it's worth at least asking the question, even if it doesn't become the main uh, focus of the game, at the very least, blowing up the server farm in uh, Moldova, where the evil video game is being run out of, is a fun side quest on the way to something else. It's a way to weaken the conspiracy, whoever they happen to be. Right. And you, with, you don't literally you know, have to turn it into the holodeck to have right. a scenario where somebody's kid is building Rala in Minecraft. And right. you have to go into Minecraft and, and uh, bust that up before, because if Cthulhu rises in Minecraft, well... Uh, he might just rise in, in the Pacific as well. And so you're not right. literally, you know, being translated into that, but there's still all sorts of skill roles and stuff that you can make playing your video game characters. Or a bunch of um, uh, preteens who you have to keep alive when the cult comes after them, when you're saying, hey, preteens, go in and tear up that kid's Riley because it's it's bad and wrong and we'll give you uh, skins in a different video game, probably. Yeah, and <laughs> it would be fun to create in the players the assumption that they're going to be sucked into the game and then they're not right. It's right. The, the deep ones come through the window to attack their, uh, their video game kids or, or what have you. So that, uh, you make them think you're going to do the cliched thing and then you, uh, hit them. With and the then you just me. have two guys with guns bust in the door. Yeah. Uh, well, I, uh, one thing that we've always also learned from Raymond Chandler is that once two guys with guns bust through the door, they usually have an exciting commercial message. And after that, a completely different topic.
The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Prevent this podcast from calling in absent by joining such beloved Patreon backers as... Christopher Hattie. Dave Choate. Will Ferguson and Fifi Pyatt. Thomas Vallejo. And John Rogers. The bubbling stove, the delicious aromas wafting through the kitchen, and the sound of things being chopped on the block welcome us once more into the tasty confines of the best of huts, the food hut. And Patreon backer Steve Dempsey, and I want to say all of our Patreon backers are beloved, but I feel that Steve Dempsey is a little more beloved. That's just what I feel. <laughs> well, especially Steve when Dempsey, he gives us a great layup like this. Exactly. Steve Dempsey offers us the word chili, and I assume, being British, there's a vocal uptick at the end yes. with a little bit of a question mark. But if we didn't want to talk about it, he's cool with that. I've, I've condensed yeah. the question to, You've you want to talk the about question. chili? So, chili? So, Ken, you're an Oklahoma boy. Yes, I am. Um, Oklahoma, as we've previously established, is... Uh, the Canada of Texas. The Canada of Texas, exactly. And so I believe that puts you uh, within the ring of people who, uh, for whom there is only one chili. Is that correct? Uh, no, because one of the things that uh, Canada does with its Texas or with its America is every so often it says, that's a thing that you very much value and will fight over. So just to be contrary, we'll do the other thing. So Texans believe that chili has no beans in it. Oklahomans are happy to add beans to chili. We'll even happier if we're talking to Texans. Right. So this is this is one of those exciting uh, foods that defines a regional identity. That yes. if you come from a certain place, you're obligated. Uh, the Texan I know certainly has this, uh, this feeling that uh, a chili can only be one way. Right. It, it, it ain't chili if it's got beans in it. It's uh, have got to have beef brisket and uh, and tomato sauce and, and lots of spice. But uh, if you put beans in it, it ain't chili. That's not authentic. And so this uh, brings us into the broader realm of questions of food history and authenticity. And when does something start being authentic? Because the original chili that first came to Texas uh, is an amazing story of uh, food fusion and uh, and is quite different than the supposedly only one true chili that you uh, the Texans uh, celebrate today because uh, so chili starts in the 1860s in San Antonio and it spreads to other Texas cities and it's sold as street food uh, by uh, women working in uh, in the case of San Antonio in Military Square in San Antonio and they are all dishing up their uh, individual types of chili and they're known as the chili queens. And it, it is assumed because they are Mexican that this is a, uh, an authentic Mexican food, but no, it's something they've all kind of invented together at that moment. And 
the uh, distinctive spice mix that they are using. Uh, it is uh, some food scholars uh, say that this is influenced uh, not by Mexican migrants to Texas, but from people uh, who came from the Canary Islands, uh, because the spice mix, the original one, is very much like sort of a tagine or like a it's a, a relative of the Moroccan uh, uh, variant of the berber spice. So this is already very uh, interesting, but they're not serving up big pots of just a tomato sauce with the seasoning and meat, uh, but rather it is a sauce that they pour on stuff. They pour it on tamales. They pour it on macaroni. It's not at all what we're what we think of today as as chili. Uh, and of course, as soon as uh, the influential uh, uh, wealthy white folks in uh, in San Antonio in the day realize that there's delicious food being served up inexpensively as part of this vibrant culture with a sense of entrepreneurial uh, spirit and salesmanship and it's exciting and vibrant so they try to stop it <laughs> because right. people are having fun and they're enjoying good food and there's joy this must be stamped out what do they think it's, it's San Antonio not like uh, some place where fun happens not New Orleans yes and uh, the next bit of the story is that uh, commercial chili powder comes ar around about two generations later. Uh, one of the inventors of chili powder is a guy named William Gebhardt. Uh, from that name, I think uh, we can assume that the uh, uh, German influence in, Texan, uh, in Texas is also coming into play. Yep. And uh, this is the spice that does finally wind up in what later becomes the one true canonical Texas chili. Right. The, the, the official state dish. Yes. Of Texas. So uh, in your research, did you uh, come across the, the, the sort of meridian point where this, uh, what starts off as a sauce for tamales or macaroni, uh, suddenly turns into this completely other thing that has always existed and is the only true right thing and always will exist? I mean, the uh, like with many of these sort of things, there's, there's a million regional versions or a million local versions, and then they suddenly go national. The national blow up of Chile happens as with all great things at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. Um, the San Antonio booth at the World's Fair is a chili stand. It introduces chili to a, a population that said, more things to do with meat and fat, sign us up. <laughs> <laughs> and there is a, there is another category of, of a uh, thing that becomes chili that is tied in uh, and it probably overflows with the original San Antonio chili, but it definitely starts hitting is the, uh, the old, uh, sort of, um, uh, uh, trail brick. And you would take beef and it's sort of like you'd make pemmican and you'd take the beef and the suet and you dry it out. And that would become pemmican. And pemmican was generally more fat than it was anything, but, but there was still meat in it. And then as you get more and more cattle, like you're say doing a cattle range, you can have lots of beef in your, in your brick, but it's beef and, uh, beef suet fat and um, uh, dried chili peppers for flavor and salt to keep it preserved. And then you take that brick and you break it off and you melt it in a hot water and that becomes your meal out on the trail. So that is, I think, where this sort of iconic purity notion also comes from. And then as the notion of how are we going to ship this new national uh, cuisine around becomes a big issue. Uh, they begin by shipping chili before they ever can it. They ship it in bricks, just like they used to make it on the trail. And I think it was because it's old trail bosses saying, well, it, this used to keep on the trail. It'll keep when we ship it to Chicago. And that became 
And because there's only so many things you can put in it, and because it is going to turn into basically a stew or a soup, depending on how much water you use, uh, when you melt it, I think that national process from, say, 1895 to, say, 1905, when they begin really doing canned chili, and you could have, in theory, changed stuff around. I guess 1908 is when they started canning. But that may be a moment at which chili makes that turn, as you say, into homogeneity and then into the search for authenticity is not new to our era. People in the 1890s are doing the same thing. And so they're like, oh, we want to eat like cowboys. You have the same sort of um, explosion in uh, the dime novels and the romance of the West in the same era. So like cowboys, we want to taunt the cows by eating cow right in front of them. Right, exactly. And so uh, chili parlors blow up as a result of the World's Fair and then as a result of the fact you can get chilies shipped and then people begin, as you say, uh, Gephardt makes uh, chili powder, which is another key thing. And chili, we should mention maybe at the at the outset, because there may be foreigners listening to this, Robin. <laughs> we're we're um, far from the outset, but continue. Right. Yes. We should mention that chili is a plant. It is a pepper. It's a kind of pepper. And there's many, many different kinds of chilies. There's jalapeno chilies. There's ancho chilies. There's hatch chilies. Uh, chilies come in red and green and all kinds of colors in between. And a chili is just a stew made with dried chili pepper plant, usually ground up and meat. And pretty much that's the minimum requirement, according to Texas, which is crazy. People talk Texans will allow you to add tomato sauce. They will have a fight about it, but they will let you do it. And then of course, the rest of the civilized world adds beans. And then I think you have to add onions or else it's, it's a, it's a, uh, you don't get the, the best thing that you could possibly have. And then what else you put in your chili starts a whole different fight, which we can go into or not. And many chili powders are not 100% powdered chili. If you get me, they are, uh, mixes of powdered chili and cumin, which is the, uh, another great Tex-Mex spice, which is in a lot of chilies. Um, and sometimes onion powder and sometimes garlic and, and other things that you can add or not add. And that's where the, that's where the Canary Islands, uh, influence sneaks in. Um, here in Ontario, uh, we are firmly in the chili con carne zone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it is not something that uh, speaks strongly to one's identity, but is simply an easy to make comfort food. And, mm. uh, here not only does it have kidney beans, but instead of brisket, because, uh, brisket has not been an Ontario thing until, uh, the current hipster generation, uh, it is ground beef. Yes. And you might, uh, in addition to, uh, uh onion, uh, and your, uh, probably spaghetti sauce that you're using, you would, uh, uh, possibly throw in some chopped garlic and make that happen. And it's a, and you can then spice it to taste. Uh, right. So you can have a very spicy one. Chances are, if you're making it in Ontario with a good English and Scots heritage, uh, it is not, uh, super spicy, but, you know, maybe these days you uh, you add some sriracha to it. And I have I have defeated the uh, amazing and talented and wonderful Sarah uh, Richardson, as she was at the time of her defeat, in a chili cook-off with a pork and beef chili that uh, used a different spice palette that was an ancho chili and cocoa and some other things. And so I'm here to tell you, uh, New Mexican chili, for example, is green chilies and uses tomatillos as well and chicken broth. Uh, and is strange, but is magnificent because green chilies are amazing. And especially in New Mexico, they're amazing. But that does lead you. That is an occasion for sin when you start screwing around like this, because there is a dire satanic chili that comes out of Cincinnati 
that is made by Greek immigrants and God bless the Greek immigrants. This is not an anti-Greek immigrant thing, but when you make your cumin and cocoa soup, don't call it chili. You're just embarrassing yourself. (laughs) And this skyline chili looks like infant diarrhea and is roughly as palatable. It is among the worst things that you can get that's called chili and uh, dunking on Cincinnati, I think, is something that all America can get behind. So um, I'm going to lay something on you, which is not the, the worst thing that you can call chili, but is perhaps the weirdest or at least most Ontario farm cooking version of chili. So uh, where I come from, there's a thing that will sometimes appear on the table. And this is an older generation thing. I think this is dying out because no one of my generation or younger likes it. Uh, but there's a thing called <laughs> chili sauce. Uh, I uh, pulled down my copy of the Snow Voyager Snowmobile Club uh, cookbook from uh, Barrie, Ontario, the uh, home city of my uh, lovely wife, Valerie. And yes, of course, it did have a recipe for chili sauce in it. So um, this is uh, uh, sort of a a pickle that you serve. You serve it like a relish. And um, so it contains the following elements. And and listen carefully to what might be missing here. Uh, 11 quarts of red tomatoes. Four sweet green peppers, a bunch of celery, half a quart of vinegar, a teaspoon of ground allspice, four sweet red peppers, 12 medium onions, uh, three pounds of white sugar, (laughs) one teaspoon of ground cloves, and three teaspoons of salt. Uh, And you... uh, uh, cook the tomatoes. Let Three it teaspoons of salt for 11, what was it, 11 quarts of tomatoes or something? 11 quarts of tomatoes, three t- tablespoons three tea of salt. Three teaspoons of salt. And three pounds of white sugar. And three um, pounds of white and sugar. You, uh, and you cook that down. Don't let it get too salty, everyone. In a roasting pan. Well, also, you may have, so what was missing from that chili, Ken? Literally everything, Robin. Literally well, everything. Also, chili. Anything remotely, <laughs> any chilies. Yes. <laughs> anything remotely spicy yet it is mysteriously called chili sauce yes basically what you've got is a not entirely trustworthy pico de gallo at the end of that respect and that's barely I, pico de gallo quite frankly because there's no because there's no no cilantro and i think there were no were there onions in that i, uh, there, I blacked yes, out halfway through 12 that. onions okay but that's as close so, as you're getting to anything sharp, that and the vinegar. Right. Uh, but it's called chili sauce. It's called chili sauce. Now, what is that derived from? Um, is that because Ontarians are, are people who um, uh, who would not swear allegiance to America and were cursed? What is what is the why would they do that? Is, did they have a red <laughs> sauce and heard about chili and said, "Well, it's red. It must be the same thing." Why would you call that chili instead of? A snow sauce or something. Exactly, Ken. I think you've you've put your finger right on it. Why would you call that chili is entirely my point. Um, And so that's, you know, a weird example of diffusion, right? That people thought, oh, chili, that's a thing. That's very exciting. Chili. And then presumably someone tried some chili and went, hmm. Oh, I don't like that. It's it's very spicy. (laughs) We don't don't like that so much. Uh, But we have all these tomatoes and we have these peppers. And uh, this thing is the same color as chili, but let's improve it by removing all of the uh, all the Scoville units all the and, flavors. And, and adding three pounds of sugar instead. And all the alliums. We're also removing those except for that one onion, that poor onion. Yeah. Um, there was a uh, Steve Jackson, a beloved uh, Texas game designer. Steve Jackson was at a convention in England and was offered chili, which has been described to me as a gray, oily mince. <laughs> <laughs> 
and I'm fairly certain also had no chili in it. Uh, and and Gray Oily Mints is my XDC tribute band. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but the but the yeah. I mean the 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 wanting to be in the club but not wanting to do the thing that gets you in the club is a weird thing that happens. And I think we see it happening very, very strongly in food with things like Ontario chili or English chili, which aren't and should be mocked. And the 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 skyline chili in, in Cincinnati, I think, is sort of a similar thing, or it's a thing where you have a cook somewhere in Cincinnati who's like, well, I know how to make meat sauce. And so they sort of halfway make chili, but they dump in a bunch of uh, of chocolate and sugar and, and other stuff, and they get those sickly, sweet, thin uh, goo. And then, of course, to make it worse, they put it on spaghetti because they're bereft. Um, uh, <laughs> and, uh, it's, it's, it's a strange universe out there. Uh, chili is wonderful. Just eat chili. It's not that hard. You can get it everywhere. Um, the Wolf brand chili, uh, has, has been, you know, it's been around since 1921. It's one of the very first, uh, commercial chilies to go national. Um, eat that. You're, you're basically eating 1895 and enjoy it. Yeah. And I think what this teaches us is that, uh, you can't hold culture in your hand, just like you can't hold water in your hand. You also can't hold chili in your hand. It's you gonna, cannot hold chili in your hand. It's going to go it? somewhere, turn into something else, going to turn into skyline chili one place, going to turn into chili sauce another place. Um, and, uh, you know, this is threatening to turn into a, just a whole other segment where I just read you other recipes <laughs> from the Snow Voyager Snowmobile Club uh, cookbook, like Tony's Beer Soup. So uh, we'd better get out of here before that happens. Right. Maybe maybe uh, some Patreon backer will request a, another magical trip to Ontario where you can practically taste the nothing. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow, Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book, has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every Tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin, and this time around, Patreon backer Michael Guimar asks us to, uh, well, there's not even a question here, just a, a, people send us things, people give us clippings, yeah. and we're asking... People say, have you seen this? You this seen seems this? like your jam. Um, and uh, the scene this in this case is the Chapel of Sacred Mirrors, and this is a kick-started, at this point, still notional temple, uh, but there, uh, there's this uh, couple, Alex and Allison Gray... Uh, they met in 1975, tripping on acid when they met, and it's been love and art and mysticism ever since for them. Uh, and uh, they uh, set up this uh, property uh, near the Hudson River in upstate New York, uh, and uh, they, uh, they're they creating this uh, temple, the, the Entheon, 
uh, which they successfully kickstarted uh, in 2016. They made uh, $350,000 approximately and have already built uh, some sort of s- small uh, mystical-ish or trippy art pieces. They have a bed and breakfast, uh, which apparently is uh, uh, also uh, quite psychedelic. And they have art happenings out there. It's in Wappinger Falls in uh, the Hudson Valley, we should mention, for people who are right now uh, loading up their shrooms and looking at Google Maps. Right. Um, but it's it's not just an art happening place. They're, they are uh, registered for tax purposes as as a religion. So... Uh, it's uh, art and mysticism coming together, and the uh, the main thing they're going to build is this uh, this three story windowless temple with this uh, uh, really uh, elaborate, uh, extremely psychedelic uh, outer uh, facade that has uh, this sort of uh, a fake uh, sort of cross between uh, Hanji and. Uh, Sanskrit. Uh, it's an invented alphabet. Invented alphabet, and there's uh, uh, the roof has uh, hundreds of eyes on it, and a sort of a swirling pattern. Uh, it uses the uh, the crawl from the water evolutionary pattern as part of it as well. So they're throwing some science in there, and the uh, well, the, dr- the dragons that go up the side of the roof are double helix dragons. Uh, yes, yeah, so it's fusing uh, art and mysticism and science all in one thing, and the uh, the images of this are quite striking. They are uh, CG images, and they were created by a, um, an animation modeler named uh, Ryan Toddle, um, who's worked on like Frozen and Wreck-It Ralph. And so uh, if this thing ever gets built, it's going to be very impressive looking, uh, and uh, you will uh, have the feeling of having had DMT without having had to actually take it just looking at this uh, yeah. this place and and i should i should point out that there is a building there it was a old carriage house built in 1882 they're refurbishing it to become a full-on entheon and according to the web page uh they have raised uh this is the last 400 grand that they're looking for to finish uh the outdoors uh and to finish the art uh, they have raised 142000 of the projected $400,000 cost. So the Kickstarter so would just phase one. We just have to cross fingers that there's no recession to drive all the rich hippies out of business so that they can finish their cool art thing. And you can go and look at all the neat uh, bas-reliefs and whatnot. The, the, the crazy three-headed Buddha uh, sculpture that's going on the top. That's been done. Uh, there's a picture of them posing with it. So they're not just scamming you. I mean, they may be scamming you, but they're not not building their cool Entheon. So if you think a cool Entheon is something, take a look. Why not? Right. Uh, but it is. It's going to look amazing. And it, I'm sure that if you drop acid in it, it's going to be just life altering because you may starve to death in there just wandering around looking at cool stuff. Uh, and, uh, lots of really great things. And of course the, uh, the theology of it is all about, you know, touching God via, uh, MDMA and LSD and all the other fun, uh, entheogens, which is the term, uh, invented by druggies for, uh, drugs that let you uh, have a spiritual experience. And, uh, they're gathering some, uh, some holy objects some relics. So they, That's uh, among the best part of this. Yeah. So they have, uh, <laughs> Spectacles that once belonged to Albert Hoffman, and they have a reliquary containing Timothy Leary's ashes. Now, I'm not sure if that is all of Timothy Leary, or he's been distributed the way that uh, the, the, the saints the, are. The saints and Buddhas have been distributed in the past, uh, but uh, they got a little bit of uh, 
uh, St. Timothy, uh, as it were there. So, uh, and these are uh, real, actual uh, uh, people in our contemporary world. And so uh, if you are taking uh, this and then trying to use it in a genre piece, uh, I think it is so obvious to go, well, this is an evil cult that we don't want to go there. A, they're actual real people that would be and and they do some and if if the art that they do is your jam this is extremely your jam anyone who's read enough weird stuff has seen alex gray's art because it's those sort of animated animated circulatory systems with crazy light shining out of their heads and chests and you if you see it you know exactly what it is you go to the website you'll see the picture you'll be all right this is who made this thing that is illustrated a hundred books that I've, that I've read. It's good. It's good stuff. And as you say, they seem like nice people. Um, they're not visibly uh, scamming anybody, which is nice. And um, their, their cool, crazy temple cannot help but improve the Hudson Valley. As far as I'm personally concerned. Right. So if you have a scenario that leads your modern investigative characters in some sort of weirdness or horror campaign to them, or to rather a fictionalized version of them, the obvious thing that all the players are going to go to is it's an evil cult. So of course you do the opposite of that. And right. uh, uh, clearly uh, the Entheon is a, a necessary battery in order to enable people uh, to deal with it, whatever the real threat is. And so in fact, it's the, uh, the forces of uh, control and destruction and the, uh, the, uh, and uh, lack of awareness that are uh, coming for them and that you are protecting uh, in this scenario. You might think that they're the bad guys, but in fact, you wind up protecting the Entheon uh, from uh, whatever it is. And you can envision in different circumstances uh, ways to tie in your occult or uh, the mystical made-up background into that. So, for example, uh, the whole point of uh, the uh, uh, Esoterrorists in that game is they are trying to uh, uh, break open uh, people's awareness by uh, creating art that is uh, disturbing and distressing and destroys people's sense of control over their environment. Well, this is the opposite of that. It's a, it's, right. a, it's a healing perspective. It's it, a way to... These guys are antibodies for the membrane. Yes, exactly. And so uh, the uh, they are uh, helping people to uh, see in different ways and to enlarge their perspective in, in a healthy way that is not uh, that it doesn't render you uh, vulnerable to sudden psychic shock if you uh, have uh, undergone all of these experiences and you uh, experience oneness, uh, you are uh, strengthened against uh, the membrane. So it might even be, uh, you know, this could be the place where agents of the Ordo Veritatis are uh, sent after a difficult assignment to realign themselves and to uh, right, and to, to heal. recenter. Um, so you could you could have some fun with the fact that. Uh, you know, the stodgy people at head office uh, think this is all rather odd, but they've they've run the science and they know that uh, people come back he- healed from this. So you could have a, a character who regains a source of stability by uh, going to the uh, to the Entheon. Uh, in a, a Cthulhu-based game, you can have a similar thing where uh, this is the multiple perspectives that you uh, learn to practice at the Entheon, uh, perhaps with the aid of psychedelics. Uh, enable you to make sure that you never fully correlate the contents, that you uh, are able to maintain a sense of uh, different perspectives uh, uh, clashing and uh, being uh, disharmonious without 
um, leading to psychic uh, breakdown. So again, uh, you know, uh, Yogg-Sothoth or Nyarlath of Temper or what have you, they, they don't want nice cults running around, uh, uh, openly kickstarting and, and taking all the funds that they'd be using for serrated daggers. They um, see this as a threat because this is, again, a, a positive force that is drawing away uh, the uh, perhaps even some sort of lost and broken people who otherwise would be uh, uh, running around a fish idol and instead are coming out here and learning about installation art and uh, checking out the, the music festival and stuff and becoming uh, healed and, and more uh, rounded people. So again, uh, any mythos entity is going to want to attack the Entheon. I think that the Entheon in a mythos game also works as a gateway to the dreamlands but not the Lovecraft symbolist Jerome dreamlands. These would be trippy psychedelic dreamlands, uh, sort of post surrealist dreamlands, if you will. And uh, as all gateways into the dreamlands are, it can be both good and bad because it's just a tool that you use. And people definitely can endanger themselves going into the dreamlands or opening these kinds of gates in themselves. If they're not trained to not use the bad ones, don't take the brown acid. Um, and it's, and so the Entheon doesn't become a cult of Yogg-Sothoth or Daloth or whatever. The Entheon becomes, uh, yet another human religion that tries to touch the cosmic, even though that's a terrible idea and, you know, no more or less than voodoo or Catholicism. Uh, the Entheon believes what it believes. And sadly, the only truth is a dark and hideous mythos truth. So the Entheon becomes people that you want to protect. They're, they're like the simple churchgoers at the Free Will Baptist Church in Providence that don't know that the haunter of the dark is coming for them. They're the, the good folks of the bayou who are worried about Cthulhu growing up and messing with their lives. And they're running this gateway into the dreamlands, which is just, it turns out that they live in a really you know, a dangerous, um, uh, a, a high crime area for mythos activity. And you could have a scenario where, you know, there's one person at the, uh, at the compound who, uh, is in league with Nyarlathotep and is trying to, uh, you know, subtly alter the invented language or to, right. Um, or they've sure been suborned by Nyarlathotep and, um, are believe that they've contacted the, the, the Godhead or the, the giant multi-faced Buddha guy, um, uh, the steeplehead and are like, no, I've seen the true vision. And so they're not even using daggers and whatnot. They're just trying to persuade them all to get this really cool experience that he's gotten. It's just that his cool experience is near Othotep. Right. And so uh, one scenario could be just, you know, root out the arcane saboteur who's uh, altering uh, the, the symbolism in order to bend it away from uh, good old fashioned, wholesome psychedelics and into uh, Yogg-Sothothery or, or uh, what have you. And, you know, you could have your uh, or you could do like an Agatha Christie style um, mystery or, uh, you know, Jessica Fletcher or whatever it is, where there's a, a, a murder at the Entheon and you have to figure out uh, what's going on. And of course, in classic misdirection style, it has nothing to do with mysticism or psychedelics. It's, you know, if, if someone's covering someone up. Someone wants that Kickstarter money. Uh, yeah, a financial <laughs> scam or uh, there's a, just a personal jealousy or, or something right. else going on there. But the murder weapon is to make them vanish into the uh, hyperspace. Yes. And uh, the thing about murdering people by throwing it into hyperspace is they might come back out again different yeah, and powerful and not different. dead at all. So uh, here's where you get your superhero origin story, right? Is that yeah. you, were, uh, you were slain and thrown into the vortex of the Entheon and you've come back. <laughs> you've, you're now the... Uh, 
the living mushroom uh, able to give uh, uh, people uh, uh, visions of the divine on contact. And uh, uh, that's right. good for some people and bad for other people. Just have to hope that uh, Grant Morrison is writing your comic, I guess. Yeah, so I, th I think we've established that Grant Morrison is writing this comic. Um, in the in the Unknown Army's world, of course, uh, stealing those spectacles will be the uh, fascinated obsession of every two-bit occultist on the Eastern Seaboard. So that can be sort of an ongoing element and yes the they've, question they've is got a mcguffin extent, collection people <laughs> right. what, what more do we need to do for you right to what extent are the entheogens and the entheon and the uh chapel of sacred mirrors connected to uh the archetypes and the avatars or are they allowing you to transcend the avatars to go into a higher implicate order of being where all the avatars can blend into one and you sort of have short-circuited the whole cosmos of unknown armies by creating not a, a, a inhuman god, but a but an all human god, and is the notion that this is actually the way to solve the problem of the unknown armies universe, the, the the running down, and so all the avatars are like, we don't like the Entheon because if everyone joins, then we won't be special, and so that's your unknown armies version of your thing where the uh, the cultists all want to knock down the Entheon. All the avatars have got a mad on for the Entheon too. Yes, and in, in Nephilim, it's where all the Nephilim characters go to find what the core activity of Nephilim is. Right, yeah, they 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 they, they uh, meditate on on, uh, on a million psychedelic eyes and say one of these has got to be looking at the freaking point of this game. And you could do a, a sequel on any of these uh, modern day weirdness games where uh, the first time you go to the Entheon, you get uh, cool information or you find the murderer or you uh, reassert your psychic equilibrium after a uh, entity attack, and the second time you head out there again, and it's gone. The carriage house is there. It's a farm full of simple farm folk. Uh, the bed and breakfast is uh, entirely uh, quotidian. It's all done in uh, um, modern plaid country style. And what happened to the Entheon? It's been erased from uh, from the timeline. You've got to go and uh, unerase it. And uh, on that note, I think we better get out of here before this podcast gets er erased because, uh, you know, the many forces that are arrayed against this podcast, we just don't want to give them ideas. So it's time for us no, to uh, uh, wave goodbye, sneak away, but we'll be back thwarting those forces a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagam. Arc Dream. Dark Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Conduct the most honest transaction of them all by throwing in with beloved Patreon backers. Ross Ireland. Todd Olson. Andrew Cowie. The Redacted Files Podcast. And Jan Zaleski. Prove your superiority to all other holiday gift givers with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Give our best-selling shirt, Time Incorporated, changing history since Aristotle was a triceratops. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>